session with Dr. Farid Hulak. Good evening and welcome to In Session with Dr. Fadi Tolakwi. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Tolakwi, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, so you can call in with any questions related to clinical psychology, including any emotional or psychological issues, parenting issues, and relationship issues as well. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and free podcasts on iTunes. Again, the studio number 310-441-0555. Before uh, I do the summary of the book from the past week, I wanted to mention the book for this week. It is The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat and Other Clinical Tales by Oliver Sacks. Uh, this is a classic book that actually I have not, not read, so I wanted to make sure I did read by Oliver Sacks, the late, great Oliver Sacks. Um, and it's, it's supposed to be a very interesting one, so looking forward to reading it and sharing it with you next week on Monday's show. The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat by Oliver Sacks. Okay, but doing the book for this week now, it was Emotional Awareness, A Conversation Between the Dalai Lama and Paul Ekman. And I was surprised I hadn't actually heard about this book because it's a book with the Dalai Lama, who, of course, uh, very well known. And then Paul Ekman, who is a leading researcher, psychologist in uh, the study of emotions. So I, ha- I hadn't seen this book and I came across it at the bookstore and decided to grab it and it's about 10 years old. That's why I was surprised I hadn't heard of it. Uh, maybe I had seen it mentioned in other books but didn't uh, didn't catch my eye. Nonetheless, was happy to have read that. Now, I do want to make a side note because Paul Ekman, he is a researcher in emotions and he talks a lot about the universality of some basic emotions that, you know, doing some studies looking at everyone from whatever culture they might be seem to have a certain set number of emotions, or at least some of them seem to be set. And he talks about this as somehow the universality of emotion. I read a book last year that I discussed by Lisa Feldman Barrett called How Emotions Are Made, where she challenges this notion that there is these innate human emotions, and even not just human, animals share some of them too. Um, And she was challenging that. And to be honest, I read some of her articles again as I was reading this book just to remember some of her thoughts. And I'm not quite convinced what the truth is. And I guess that's what science is all about, is that you continue studying to try to better understand things. Um, But just something interesting to keep in mind. But nonetheless, talking about different minds talking or people having different perspectives and coming together. That was kind of the idea behind this book. To have the Dalai Lama, who is a very big figure, uh, or the biggest figure in Buddhism that who is alive, um, but a religious figure, and then Paul Ekman, who is a research scientist, and have them have a conversation. So that in and of itself, I thought, was nice and a good thing about this book, that we need to have more of this discussions from people who disagree or at least have different perspectives or bring different perspectives with them into the debate or the discussion and that this is 
necessary and helpful for us all to learn. So I thought that was interesting to have that to begin with, especially uh, with the climate today where we see we're becoming more and more polarized and people tend to surround themselves with people who believe the same things that they believe. And there's very little discourse between people who disagree. And really the only discourse there is tends to be really hateful and ugly. And it's more about just uh, vilifying the other side and insulting each other rather than trying to have a positive discourse where both sides hopefully can learn from each other. So that in and of itself was interesting, although they didn't really disagree too much. There were times where they seemed to disagree. Um, overall, they seemed to see eye to eye on many things, or at least could come to some level of com compromise or understanding. Um, but that itself, I think, was was nice. So there is this idea of the East versus West, science versus religion. And rather than seeing it as verses, science versus religion, that they have to be completely incompatible, we can see where maybe we can learn from each other. There are certain things that science really can't discuss that religion might discuss, and there's certain things in religion that aren't really things that science would look at, but there are many things where we can actually learn from one another and conversations can be had, and even research should be conducted and, and can be conducted and has looking at some things that religion might talk about. Uh, most specifically in this book, when we look at meditation, that's something that has been a Buddhist practice for thousands of years. But in recent decades, we've seen lots of research on this old practice and seeing how it actually can be beneficial. So we've done scientific research on something that appeared to be a religious type of a thing and realized that it's not just beneficial for people who follow this religion, it can be beneficial for all, and we can also study it to better understand uh, the phenomenon. Uh, the book itself read very, it's interesting, because in a way it was easy to read because it was like a conversation, which was nice, and even it would put you know, uh, parts where they would laugh or, you know, there was someone joking or something like that, which made it read like a conversation. But also because of that, at times I felt it wasn't so easy to grasp the main points they were trying to make. And they would almost sneak up on you sometimes, or if you weren't really, uh, no pun intended, being mindful, you might've missed the really important point that was being made. So it was, a, it was a good and a bad thing, the conversational style. It was nice because you felt like you were in the room with them as they had these conversations all together. I think they talked for 39 hours over a course of actually months uh, to make the meetings together. Um, so you felt like you were in the room with them, which was nice. But at the same time, sometimes it made it hard to follow exactly what would be the most important thing to grasp out of a certain point or even certain pages. Nonetheless, they covered many different uh, topics. So it was emotional awareness. And one issue that came up was the idea of emotions being positive or negative, or when emotions can be beneficial or destructive. And Paul Ekman, uh, from my estimation, agrees with what I would say, which is that all emotions are good or can be good, but it depends on how we utilize them or how they affect us that can make it good or bad. Even something like anger, which we think of as a negative feeling very often, that's a bad feeling. It's not just a bad thing. Anger actually can be very, very important. It helps us recognize we feel that something wrong has happened, we've been wronged, or something unjust is happening. And because of that anger, we might respond in a way that protects us, uh, protects someone else, 
or can at least communicate to the other person that we're not happy about something. So to have this idea that anger is this bad feeling we have to erase, I don't agree with, and that's discussed in the book, that really any feeling can be afflictive or non-afflictive in a way, negative or positive. It can have a positive effect. Um, so I thought that was an interesting discussion that they had together and one that I think is very important for us to remember that there aren't feelings that are just bad no matter when we have them. There's good and bad feelings. Even from happiness, you might make a stupid decision. Or we know that when we're really happy, we can sometimes become overly optimistic or not see the negative and maybe not be aware of the reality of what we are facing. And that's something else they talked about, how emotions can distort our reality, and that's when they can be problematic. Now, looking at anger, uh, there was another interesting discussion that they had that I found very interesting because it was looking at when we were mad at someone, or even the way I said that, we're mad at someone, rather than being mad at them, mad at the actor, we should focus our anger on the action. So it's not that I'm mad at you wholly as a person, I'm mad at the thing you did. So I can still maintain even compassion for you in that moment, but I can be hurt or upset by what you did. Uh, this also reminded me of when John Gottman talks about in marriages that we should focus on complaint versus criticism. Complaint means I'm mad at something you did, a specific action, whereas criticism is something global about you. So rather than I'm mad that you didn't take out the trash last night, a criticism would be you're a lazy bum, you never do anything. And that's not going to work. There you're attacking the person, whereas in a complaint, you're just attacking, you're getting upset about the action. So they had that discussion, which I thought was a very interesting one, to focus on the action rather than the actor. Um, and this relates to the idea of forgiveness, because when you're upset with someone, you forgiveness is very difficult for us to do many times, and but it can be very helpful. And so first, if we focus on the action rather than the actor, it becomes easier to forgive. But also we know that forgiveness is something that many people will resist. And we often think things like, well, the person doesn't deserve my forgiveness. And what they discuss, which I think is a very nice discussion, is the idea that forgiveness is not something we do for the other person. It's something we do for ourselves. Because when we're not forgiving, when we're holding on to that anger and that resentment, it's like a poison that we're swallowing, hoping that it hurts them. So it's only hurting us. So I always discuss how we forgive not for them, but for ourselves, because we're going to feel better once we forgive and let go of that resentment. It's really an idea of making us uh, feel better, not them. And they also discuss that forgiveness doesn't mean you forget what happened or that there's no changes now to your behavior or your relationship or interaction with that individual. Someone hurts you, you might forgive them, but not give them another opportunity to hurt you again. That would make sense. You might say, I forgive you, but I cannot trust you to allow you to hurt me in this way. So you might end the relationship or end some aspect of the relationship or make some changes. So by forgiveness, they don't mean this idea of, well, I forgive, and so now you can hurt me again. And that's sometimes the idea people have that, okay, if I become too forgiving or too kind and compassionate, that means that I let people do whatever they want to me. And, of course, that would mean that we're not being kind to ourselves. So even the Dalai Lama was saying that he 
uh, you know, we can forgive, but then not necessarily let someone hurt you again. It doesn't mean you infinitely trust people and give them infinite opportunities to hurt you over and over again. Now, um, another issue I found important looking at compassion was this discussion they had about the balance of wisdom and compassion. Now, this reminds me of the argument Paul Bloom had in his book Against Empathy related to rational compassion or looking at cognitive empathy versus emotional empathy. So cognitive empathy means I see someone in a certain situation and I can understand on a cognitive or in an idea that that person is in some kind of pain or discomfort or suffering. Emotional empathy is actually when I feel the pain, when I'm actually in their shoes and feel the pain. Cognitive empathy, I imagine what it's like and I can try to understand it. And they discuss how for someone who is in a helping profession, for example, the in the example that Paul Ekman introduces is a pediatric oncology nurse and how he or she is dealing with a very stressful job with a lot of negative outcomes and a lot of pain. And if they stay stuck and feel everything, every patient and every family is feeling, it's going to be too much. It's going to be overwhelming and lead to burnout. And they won't be able to actually be very helpful in the long run, not only to the people they're helping, but even to themselves. And the Dalai Lama mentions this topic or this concept of discriminating or discerning awareness. And so that we can feel compassion for someone else, but in a way, keep a distance where we recognize it's not our pain, it's not my burden. And with that, we actually have an easier time of helping them. And he mentions how when we help very often, that itself can allow us to feel better about the situation when we feel like we can do something about it. But if all we do is feel, if I just feel sad, if I feel your pain, but do nothing, I'm just going to be hurt and get nothing out of it. So th there's many discussions they have throughout the book on these types of related topics. And of course, one theme that comes in and out throughout the book is the idea of meditation and how beneficial that can be in many ways for us becoming more emotionally aware. First and foremost, just becoming more in touch with your emotions. What am I feeling at any given moment? And although most of us think we're very good at it, as it turns out, we really are not. And often we're unaware of what we're feeling. And things like practices like meditation can help with that. And then before even just the emotions themselves, understanding the triggers and the things that make us feel certain things, that can also be beneficial for our overall emotional health, but having more emotional awareness. So I only mentioned just a few of the topics they cover throughout this book, which I did find quite interesting because we're looking at two uh, great minds, one in psychology, one in religion, and the exchange they have is quite interesting. And also the friendship you see that they've developed before they have the conversation, but then also over the course of these conversations is very heartwarming as well. So uh, I'd recommend the book for anyone who's interested in these topics, especially things like meditation. Even if you're skeptical about meditation, it might give you some better insight uh, and overall emotional intelligence and emotional awareness. So that was Emotional Awareness, a conversation between the Dalai Lama and Paul Ekman. And again, the book for this week is The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat by Oliver Sacks. All right, we're at our first commercial break. Studio number 310-441-0555. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delacqui. We'll be right back. 
Welcome back to In Session with Dr. Fadi Tulakwi. You know, the previous segment I was talking about the book Emotional Awareness by the Dalai Lama and Paul Ekman. And a theme that goes throughout that book um, is the idea of balance, even this idea of the balance between East and West and science and religion and our different aspects of our personality or even the rational and emotional. And sometimes we try to argue which one is better in these types of discussions, but what we find is it's really about balance that we find the best way, the best path. And related to that balance, I want to talk about another theme of Buddhism that also comes in throughout this book, and that is the theme of interdependence and this idea that all people on this planet are interdependent on each other. And this is another one of those where we can sometimes get sucked into extremes, but really we find the balance is in the middle. So on one side we have dependence. Now, there, the, this concept of interdependence can mean a lot of different things, but I'm going to talk about when it comes to a relationship or it comes to an individual. But of course we can have dependence, and all of us come to this world very dependent on our parents for survival. The baby can't survive even for a few years on its own, uh, which is different from many other species of animals where one of the most helpless or altricial uh, young it belongs to humans because when we're born, because of the size of our heads, we are highly encephalized. And also because uh, we are bipedal, we walk on two legs, it makes the birthing process difficult. And as a result, babies are born, human babies are born, with a lot of developing left to do. They don't come out um, ready to survive or live on their own. They're still very dependent and need a lot of help to survive. So we're born dependent, but we're not supposed to stay dependent. Unfortunately, many of us do. And of course, it's usually not the kids making that choice. It's the parents who are creating that type of relationship and that dynamic with them that causes them to stay dependent. When we're dependent, there is a feeling of fusion that there is no separation between you and I. And for many people, this gives them a feeling of safety, of comfort, that I'm never alone. I'm always with you. We're always connected. We see everything the same. We feel the same. Um, and in this way, we know that we'll never lose each other. And separation feels like death for us. But if we look at just one individual, if they're dependent, that means that they can't survive on their own. Or really it's the illusion that they can't, but that they're living in a way where they their needs are being met by other people or they have to be taken care of by other people. Now, most people will easily see this as a bad place to be as an adult, to be dependent. And so we think that the solution, as we often do, is to be the opposite of that. So if we're not de dependent, I'm independent and completely independent which means I don't need anyone. I can do everything on my own. This is talking about it in the extreme. And Stephen Covey in The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People uh, talks about this theme. But there's this feeling of, okay, so then being independent is the best. I'm not dependent on anyone. I don't need anyone. I do everything on my own. And we think this is where we're supposed to be. But there's an African proverb that says, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. 
meaning that, yes, you can do a lot completely on your own, but it's not a true sign of strength to do everything all by yourself. And so some people, out of a reaction to not appear weak or not appear dependent, get to this place where they say they never need anyone else. They can do everything on their own. They don't need help. Maybe they don't even need medical care or psychological care. They don't need anything. They are the strongest, and that's where they think they're supposed to be. But what we find is that it's neither of these extremes, the dependent or independent, that's the best way to live. It's interdependence and recognizing that we all are interdependent on other individuals to survive. And to achieve anything great, we need others, and we need their help, and we need their support, and we need to work together to achieve greatness. And so this is where, where we want to end up, is this feeling of interdependence. I don't need anyone to survive, so I'm not completely dependent on anyone but I'm also not completely alone or doing things by myself. Because in a way, this actually is a different type of selfishness to be completely on our own. Because because of our emotional attachment to not need anyone else, so the opposite of dependency, we are not actually working with others to create better things, to do more, to do better. So we actually want to get to this place of interdependence where we're working with others, where we're choosing to uh, find how we can actually complement one another to do better and to do more. So this is a very important idea for us to remember. It's not about being fully independent. That's not the final solution when it comes to coming out of dependency. We want to find interdependence. And they discuss interdependence in this book because in the idea from the Buddhist traditions that when we realize our interdependence, it becomes easier to have compassion for others to realize that we don't have to just care about ourselves or just even our family or our tribe, but we want to really care for everyone, to care for all beings. And they talk about that in this book, this Buddhist, in a way we can call it an ideal, to have compassion for all sentient beings, basically all beings that can feel. Sentient means not just living, but they can actually feel something. But we want to extend our compassion not just to be for ourselves, our family, our tribe, our nation, whatever it might be, and extend that to everyone and every living thing, everything that can feel. And this might seem almost crazy or something that's idealistic, and maybe to some degree it is idealistic to, to get there, but it's kind of an aspirational type of thing that we can strive towards feeling more compassion not just towards ourselves and to those close to us, but to everyone. And that's something we're supposed to strive towards, and the Buddhist uh, traditions encourage you to do that, to try to become more compassionate for all living beings, all those uh, things. And I think this does make sense as an aspiration, because when we think, I want to be nice to certain people, they're kind here, but not kind in another direction, it doesn't seem to work. Something is missing. In a way, it's as if the compassion has to radiate out of you, has to come out of you really in every direction, not just focused here and there. And that's what people who practice things like compassion meditation start to feel, that the response of kindness or compassion doesn't become something they think about or actively do, but it starts to become more automatic 
They don't think about, should I care about this person or that person, or let me make sure I care about this person. It just naturally comes from them once they cultivate and develop that feeling over time. And as I'm emphasizing at the end there, over time, it's not something that you're just going to feel all of a sudden or that you need to feel now or else it means you're not going to get there. But it's something that we can develop extending that web of compassion, the feeling that we have for other people, that we care about them. And I talked about this in the previous segment. Compassion is a complex uh, issue or concept because we might think it's very easy just to feel for other people, but what that means is very complicated because once I feel for other people, that also means I need to act on that compassion or really it's not worth very much. So our compassion isn't just about stopping at feelings and feelings alone, but it's that I feel something and because of that I want to make things better for whoever it is that is suffering. I want to help them in some way. And we know that when we feel helpless, when we feel like the problem is too big or too many people are suffering, it's very easy for us to give up or to have what we can call a collapse of compassion and choose not to care. So if I tell you, one child is starving, you say, let me go buy him or her food. Very easy. When I tell you 10 million children are starving, all of a sudden you think, well, there's no way I can solve that problem. And thinking about that problem makes me feel bad. So it's easier for me to ignore the problem altogether. Paul Bloom discussed this in the book Against Empathy, which was the book of the week a few weeks ago, and many other authors as well. But this idea that when a problem feels like it's too big, we give up completely because we know that even if we try hard and we put efforts to make things better, we won't fully solve the problem or it feels that we won't fully solve the problem. And that's going to mean I'm going to remain feeling bad. It's easier for me to give up. And so when we see big issues that aren't going to be easily solved, we have to be conscious of our tendency to want to give up, to just say, you know what, this is too big. We can't fix it, so forget about it. We should rationally think about it. And this is where, although I didn't like the title Against Empathy, and I think he, in a way, intentionally did that, but in Paul, Paul Bloom's book Against Empathy, it's a way we have to think rationally about the situation and have what he calls rational compassion, where we look at the situation and think, well, if one person starving was making me sad, I can't ignore a million people starving or 10 million people starving. I have to do something about it. So it's good for us to study these types of things. We might think of kindness and compassion as things that are uh, nice things, pleasant things, and really we can't study them. But there is a lot of research being done on things like compassion and empathy, kindness, to realize we have to understand ourselves better because once we do, then we can find out where our shortcomings or our mistakes can be and counteract those things to actually act in different ways. So once I know that when I find out there's a lot of people suffering, I have a tendency to ignore the problem. I can consciously be aware of this and think about, well, I still can care about this. I don't have to solve the problem all on my own. And going back to the idea of interdependence, almost never will you solve anything on your own that's anything important or anything significant. So because we're interdependent, we care about one another, but also we recognize that to solve anything we work with one another as well. We work together. And not only do we work with one another who is alive today, some problems might take generations to solve. 
but we shouldn't give up because it's going to take some time. Uh, we are writing the book together, and together we might write one page. We might not write the last page. We want to contribute to that book, which ends with uh, all people not suffering or suffering needlessly. We don't want that to exist anymore. We can work together to make that happen. So these discussions on compassion and kindness and how we can cultivate them within ourselves, I think were really important. I enjoyed that in, in this book, Emotional Awareness. And I'm also happy that many people are continuing to research these topics because they are so important. And it's important for each one of us to reflect on these issues within ourselves as well. All right, going into our last commercial break, studio number 310-441-0555. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Devaqui. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Earlier in the show, I talked about forgiveness, and I also wanted to talk about the other side of forgiveness, which is apologizing. Um, it's an easy thing to say, Apologies are important, so I know everyone knows that. But actually making a genuine apology is not an easy thing to do. Many of us struggle with that. So first, if you realize you struggle with apologizing, you should think some things through. First of all, am I too hard on myself? Meaning that because I'm so hard on myself, I don't want to acknowledge any wrongdoing. To acknowledge wrongdoing means we have to be at some level kind with ourselves, that we can accept we did something wrong. I did something wrong, but it doesn't make me bad. As I was saying before, we can be angry or upset or disappointed with an action, but not the actor, not the person. So if I did something wrong, it doesn't make me a bad person, but I might have done a bad thing. And that's that can be okay, and now I want to make that right. So if you have a hard time apologizing... Um, you might be too hard on yourself, so you're afraid to acknowledge wrongdoing. Related to, to that in a different way, people who ha suffer from narcissism or are very narcissistic have a hard time apologizing or acknowledging wrongdoing because they always want to feel that they are good and right and righteous and I don't make mistakes. So if you're upset, it must be something about you, not something I did. And this is a very bad place to come from to maintain a healthy or happy relationship. Um, but if you find yourself having a hard time apologizing, you need to reflect on that. So if you say, I don't apologize often or I never apologize, that's not a sign of strength. It's a weakness that you can acknowledge when you do make a mistake because we all do. We inevitably do. And even related to that word, I just said mistake. Sometimes we might apologize for something that wasn't some grievous error or something really bad that we did. Maybe even we offended someone and we didn't do something so wrong or bad, but they were offended. We can still genuinely apologize for that to let them know that we are sorry that we hurt them. So apologizing doesn't mean that you're a bad person or even that you did some horrible thing. Maybe you did, but apologizing can happen for all sorts of things. So we shouldn't think, well, is this worth apologizing for? If you hurt someone's feelings, if you made someone upset that you care about, it should be something you want to do because you care about them and you care about the relationship. So that should be your motivation going into a genuine apology, that I care about this person that I've hurt and I care about my relationship with them. And because of that, I want to apologize to them. That's the mindset we need to have going into it. Unfortunately, many people, when they go into an apology, 
The reason why they're apologizing is because they realize someone is upset with them. They can't tolerate that feeling of either a, the guilt of I'm bad or I, you know, or even shame. I am bad or guilt. I did something wrong or the threat that maybe they're going to lose this relationship or this person and that this person feels bad. So they just want to be exonerated. They want to have the guilt removed. And this is most obvious by people who say, I'm sorry, it's okay, right? Something like that where they're quickly checking in to see if they've been forgiven. That means that the motivation is more about getting forgiveness for them rather than genuinely apologizing to the other person. And this is not a genuine apology. So that's just a few things to recognize both in you or if someone is apologizing to you, that the word I'm sorry doesn't make it a genuine apology. It's a start and it should be in there, but definitely just because someone said I'm sorry doesn't mean it was a genuine apology. So to begin with, you first want to try to understand, even before you talk to the person, why they are upset with you. Because that's a big part, to understand, okay, I can see how what I did hurt this person. I can get that. So you want to have that mindset. So when you begin the conversation, you want to start with that. And another big part of an apology that I should mention is that an apology doesn't include justifications or excuses or blaming the other person. So we also hear people say, I'm sorry I said that, but you were being crazy. Okay, well, that's not really an apology. That's more blaming them and saying they're the cause for whatever you said to them. So in a way, they're the cause for whatever pain they are now feeling and taking away all the blame and any guilt from yourself. So when you want to apologize, just focus on what you did and why you feel bad. There possibly will be an opportunity to go deeper and you can express what you were going through, help them understand why it might have happened, have a, a genuine back and forth together, but that's not how you need to open it. And also the better your apology or the more genuine it is, the more likely you'll have a positive conversation afterwards where you can hopefully speak your mind too and they can tell you more about what they felt and experienced. So first you want to acknowledge that you did something wrong. I'm sorry that I did this. Again, focus on the action. I'm sorry that I did this thing and I can understand how it hurt you. And you might even try to anticipate what they felt or what you think they felt, not telling them, I know you felt this, or this is what you felt, but it seemed that it made you sad, which I can understand because of X, Y, and Z. So you're acknowledging what you did wrong and letting them know I'm sorry about it. So I'm sorry means I feel bad that I did this thing that I recognize was hurtful to you or that I uh, recognize was not good because there also has to be a part of regret. So if you say, some people even say, I'm sorry I did that, but you know, I'd probably do it again, or they give you that feeling. That's not a genuine apology. Again, it includes the word sorry, but doesn't mean it's an apology. So there has to be some level of regret that I see that I did this thing and I feel bad that I did this thing. I, there's regret or even remorse. I feel bad about it. Even I feel guilty about it. And very, very importantly, I don't want to do it again. That has to be part of it. And it should be stated, but also you have to show it in your behavior. Because we all know someone who's apologized to us for something that they keep doing to us. And the apology feels very empty and doesn't feel genuine at all. Because we see that, well, if you really cared, if it really made you sorry, I don't think you would do it again. 
that doesn't feel genuine to me, that you genuinely don't want to do this thing or you genuinely feel bad about it because you did it three days ago and you did it four days before that and now here you are doing it again. So for a genuine apology to be felt and for you to really mean it, there has to be this part of, I don't want to do this again. And sometimes related to that, there's even corrective actions that you might take. I did this thing, I forgot to call you and I realized I need to set an alarm to make sure I call you for this thing or that thing or whatever it might be. So you're showing an effort because I genuinely care, because I recognize what I did was wrong and I don't feel good about that and I don't want to do it again. Here's what I'm going to do. So it include that part as well. Now, a very important part about apologies that relates to something I said at the beginning is that you make it very clear that there isn't a pressure for forgiveness or a timeline for forgiveness. So it's not that I apologize and you better be okay with it now, or I said, I'm sorry, so you better not be upset anymore. And that's sometimes, sometimes you hear that something happens in the heat of the moment and the person is really upset at what the other person just did. And they said, I'm sorry. And the person's like, okay, well, yeah, yeah I get it, but I, I need some time. And they're like, oh, I, okay, I said, I'm sorry. I'm sorry is not a, a magic pill or some drug that takes away all the feelings the person has. The person needs time to process it. And that's something that's also a big part of a genuine apology is I understand I hurt you. And I also know it might take time for you to forgive me, even maybe saying you might not forgive me for this if it was very bad. And I'm, I want to give you that time to do that, that I know it'll be a process. And related to that, I'm here to help and I want to know how I can help in that process because maybe they want to talk to you about it or maybe they need some space or maybe they want to hear you hear their side of things to understand what they really felt because they think you really don't get it yet and you should even ask for that when you tell them how you think they felt it seems that you were upset it seems that you were sad and I could understand why you can even say but I want to make sure I fully get what you're feeling so if you can please let me know I want to understand it even better you let them know that you care. So you let them know that they have the space to forgive you because this is really key. When we put that pressure that you better forgive me or else, or why haven't you forgiven me yet? Or I said, I'm sorry, you're being sensitive, which is something people do. They start with an apology, but then it ends with an attack. You know, I'm really sorry that this happened. The person's like, well, you know, I'm still mad about it. Like, oh, well, whatever. You're just sensitive and blah, blah, blah. Well, now it's not a genuine apology. You're attacking that person. A genuine apology means I acknowledge I hurt you. So if I hurt you, it might take time for you to heal that hurt. And I'm going to give you that time. And that's very important. And so that last element, in a way, is a big indicator that I'm not doing it for my feelings. I'm not doing it so I get forgiven. I'm, or my guilt to be resolved. I'm doing it because I genuinely feel like I hurt you and it's about you. And that's very important that it's about the person you're saying I'm sorry to, not about you. And even related to that, um, sometimes we might get emotional during an apology. So I don't want to say don't get emotional at all. You do want to probably have some level of emotion make sense if it's a genuine apology, you genuinely feel bad. But another way that people can sometimes make the apology about them is to start hysterically crying and becoming so overwhelmingly emotional that the other person might even now feel like they have to take care of you. 
So if I'm saying, I hurt you and I come to you say, I'm so sorry, it makes me feel so bad. And now you see me crying and I can barely get the words out. Well, a lot of times people are going to start, okay, no, it's okay. Don't worry about it or calm down or whatever it might be to try to make you feel better. And now it becomes about you, the person who's apologizing rather than the person that you hurt. So I get it that sometimes we might be apologizing about something that's very intense and serious. And so we might get tearful, but you almost want to prepare yourself beforehand that you're trying to keep it about that person. So you want to contain it as much as you can so that if you don't, so you don't get out of control, because if you do, the person very likely will have to make it about you rather than them. And that might defeat the whole purpose of apologizing to begin with. So I understand that things we apologize about might be emotionally intense, but we want to be aware of our emotions because they could affect the outcome or the process of that apology. And another last word about apologizing in general. Almost every relationship, or really any relationship we have, I shouldn't even say almost, there are things we've done to one another that have hurt each other. It's just part of human relationships, part of interacting. Very often we hurt each other unintentionally. Sometimes it might be intentionally, but even with the best of interests and best of intentions, we still will hurt one another. And this can be hard to accept. We might not want to take that in, but we have to accept that. That again, it doesn't make me a bad person. It's just natural part of being human and interacting with one another. And so because of that, we should make it our own responsibility to want to apologize to those that we love, to people that are close to us and recognize that we've, we've hurt them. We very likely have. And an apology is actually one of the best ways someone can heal a pain or a wound. Very often people are in therapy and we sometimes get to this realization that they have this wound that might be healed a lot quicker if the person who hurt them, let's say their mother or father or ex-partner, whoever it might be, if that person were also in the room or might say sorry and apologize for what happened. We see that this is the quickest way for us to actually heal a wound is to get an apology. But often we don't get that, unfortunately. So that means we should think as individuals, because that's the quickest way to heal someone's pain that I care about, because I can say that I am sorry, I can say that apology, let's not waste that opportunity or let's take advantage of that opportunity for those that we love to show them we care and to help them heal those wounds. And importantly, when we heal those types of wounds through apologies and working through the issues, what's created is a stronger bond. It's like where that wound heals, it becomes even more connected and we become more deeply connected to one another. So what results isn't just a healing of that wound, but it's even a strengthening of that relationship. So let's not undermine the value of apologies. And of course, on the other end, the value of forgiveness, which I was discussing a bit before, but those things go hand in hand in creating and continuing to maintain a healthy, happy, and strong relationship. All right, we've reached the end of tonight's show. Again, the book of the week is The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat by by Oliver Sacks. A big thanks to Amir here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delakwi. Have a wonderful night.